0: In Scotland, they used to pray that from ghoulies and ghosties and long-leggedy beasties and things that go bump in the night, good Lord deliver us. But these days, do we really mean that? Halloween is turning into a worldwide holiday, celebrated in countries that never even had that tradition before, which is to say before movies and comics and the commerce of All Hallows' Eve. What is it about making ourselves a little bit scared that draws us all again and again to the creatures of our imagining? Leo Brody is a USC English professor who sorts out our fondness for a good fright in his book, Haunted, on ghosts, witches, vampires, zombies, and other monsters of the natural and supernatural worlds, and why we go for the trick and the treat. Why do we love doing this to ourselves, to scaring ourselves?
1: I think it's partially purgative. That is, when you see something in a movie or you read a book, that is, it has a shape to it. It arouses these fears, these emotions, but then it allays them. It makes them into a story. So by the end, we feel a little bit better about things. And so we can outsource our terror? I think we can outsource it. We can outsource it into traditional monsters of one sort or another. Whatever is bothering us in the current world, whatever is freaking us out, whatever is making us uncertain, becomes part of a story, part of something that we, we're sort of familiar with. We know about monsters. We know about vampires. We know about ghosts in, in some vague way. And so we can assimilate it to that knowledge. What is the difference between terror and horror? In terms of the first people who talked about this at the end of the 18th century, they were very interested in that difference between terror and, and horror, and in fact, they, they made this very specific distinction – Radcliffe, who was one of the great best-selling authors of the time, said that the difference between a terror and horror is that horror is a physical response. It actually comes from the Latin for your hair raising on ends. That's
0: what wonderful word horripilations yeah. when you have gooseflesh, goose flesh. Goose exactly,
1: flesh. goose flesh, anything physical. So that's like... You know, what my wife would call jumping out movies, things that just startle you in that way and you get a physical response. But terror is much more metaphysical. It's existential. It's about the shape of the universe. It's about God and Satan and all those kinds of things.
0: And it can stay with you then long after the goose flesh is gone.
1: Absolutely. It's kind of
0: embedded in your psyche somewhere. Before the 18th century, you had the Christian era horror, which is mostly a horror of hell, going to hell of demons. The 18th century is when horror starts to become, as the novel is created, commercialized. It becomes part of public
1: culture. It is popular culture, in fact. A part of what I think is behind your question, too, is this whole relationship between horror and religion. That horror and religion are both preoccupied by the line between life and death. And that's the sometimes uncertain line between life and death, we might say, the way ghosts come back, the way monsters arise in that way. So horror and religion go way back. The late eighteenth century, you see you have a burgeoning popular culture, and one of the prime elements in that popular culture is the literature of sensibility, the literature of emotion, the literature of fear. That is, literature is not necessarily meant to make you think. It's also meant to make you feel. So you have in this period things like, you know, the beginnings of contemporary pornography in this period. Literature is supposed to make you sexually aroused. Satiric literature that's supposed to make you angry. The literature of sensibility, which is supposed to make you cry. And of course, the Gothic literature, which is supposed to... Scare you.
0: We are also marking this year the 200th anniversary of the publication of the book Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. And this book really set us on the course where we find ourselves now with how we use terror as instructive, morally instructive, or just for the fun of scaring the crap out of ourselves. The Frankenstein monster is the monster. Frankenstein is the doctor, or as the title calls him, the modern Prometheus, the man who brought fire to humans and was punished for it.
1: The monster is never quite called a monster in the book. He's generally called the creature. And so the idea is, is he really monstrous in that way? Again, different kinds of interpretations. What is this book about? Is it about the failed father-son relationship uh, between Frankenstein and the creature? Is it about the idea of the monstrous itself? Part of, I think, the, of the, let's say, the longevity of the Frankenstein story is that it is so malleable. Mary Shelley creates a myth, a new modern myth, the modern Prometheus, but it's the modern myth of the scientist, let's say. The scientist who wants to create something, but then abandons his creation. So there's a kind of familial side to it. There's a scientific side to it. Mary Shelley didn't know anything about cloning. Mary Shelley didn't know anything about body parts, how they could be made, how they could be manufactured on a 3D printer even. But in fact, her story, the myth that she created, is capacious enough that it can encompass so many changes that have happened over the last two centuries.
0: We still use that as a term in culture that virtually everyone knows. You say, Frankenstein
1: people know what you mean. And we have frankenfood, you know, genetically modified food. It becomes a, a label. People say Sherlock Holmes who've never read a Sherlock Holmes novel or story, or people say Frankenstein who've never read Frankenstein. It has detached from its origins and it becomes a kind of uh, a, a metonymy, just a piece, something that everybody in the culture knows, even though they may not know where it comes from.
0: The Frankenstein creature is one of the four kinds of monsters you talked about. Where does he fit in?
1: It seems to me that every era has its own monsters. And we're still in this kind of 200 year or so, 200 year plus era in which four prime monsters and a couple subordinate monsters have appeared. So in my taxonomy then, first of all is the monster from nature, the thing that happens that comes out of nature. I mean, Sasquatch, the Yeti, King Kong, King Kong, uh, all sorts of, you know, animal monsters, natural monsters of all sorts. And now, ladies and gentlemen, before I tell you any more, I'm going to show you the greatest thing your eyes have ever beheld. He was a king and a god in the world he knew, but now he comes to civilization, merely a captive, a show to gratify your curiosity. Ladies and gentlemen, look at Kong, the eighth wonder of the world. What's behind this creation of monsters? Well, in part, it's the modern world. That is, the modern world, the idea of the enlightenment, the idea of progress, you know, pushes us forward. It's all about sunlight. It's all about being better. It's all about ideals there. But the gothic, the, the horror, is about what we've left behind. Look what's happening with climate change, arguments like that now. That's the monster, in fact, on the horizon. So it, that, that has a perpetuity in it as well. The next kind of monster is the Frankenstein monster, which is the monster about the misuses of science. That's one of the ways it's become a metaphor for so many different things. So that's, again, a part of the modern world. We're moving too fast. We're doing things we shouldn't be doing. We're messing with nature. Look, it's It's moving. The next one is the psychological monster, and that's the Jekyll and Hyde monster, the monster that doesn't come from nature, doesn't come from science, but comes from within. That is, our own fears about ourselves, our, our, but you, know, you could connect that in a way to the natural monster because it's about that primordial, that primitive self that's inside that's violent and crazy and sexual and all those other things. Here's Johnny! And the final monster is the vampire, and the vampire is the monster from the past. The vampire monster represents a pre-Christian world. It comes out of the past that we've forgotten and is going to take its revenge on us.
0: I am Dracula. And that is the monster, unlike, say, King Kong, who is an innocent. He'll kill you, but he's not after your soul. Mm -hmm. The vampire, because he is ancient, because he can be seen as anti-Christian, anti-religious, is a bigger danger in some ways.
1: A much bigger danger because he also represents, in addition to being anti-Christian and pre-Christian in those ways, he also represents an alternative to Christianity. What is he promising? Immortality, essentially.
0: And there is that sexuality that some mm-hmm. of these monsters begin to exude and appeal. I mean, you see the Gothic novels and women were mocked for reading them. But, but at the same time, these novels are about a challenge to authority, a challenge to political authority, to religious authority, to male authority. No wonder women like to read them.
1: Well, in fact, some of the earliest caricatures of the readers of the Gothic were caricatures of women sitting around a table scaring themselves. And there's one even more crazy one that I include in the book, which is an image of a woman sitting with her hand under her dress reading The Monk this great bestseller of this of the 1790s wow georgian porn <laughs> exactly masturbating in, in a pretty obvious way and the image is called luxury so i mean this you know again that is the erotic the idea of the monster as a kind of antisocial being or a being who has been rejected by society in one way or another i should add this as a as a fifth category of monster is the zombie I mean, that's the kind of monster that we see most frequently these days. The zombie is a very intriguing sort of monster because unlike all the other monsters, the zombie is a member of a group, and it's a faceless group. There is no king zombie. the zombie myth is really about the crowd it's about the fear of crowds it's about the fear of whoever whatever crowd you don't like you know it's a fear of islamic fundamentalists or immigration immigrants coming over the border or republicans or democrats whoever you hate it's about that crowd and so i think that's what kind of reaches into our basic paranoia these days that fear of otherness as a group the modern modern fictional detective is a creature who Dispel some
0: of the darkness that from Anne Radcliffe to Sherlock Holmes books, it science says, wait a minute. I know what's going on here. That's not a ghost. That's not a fill in the blank.
1: I felt it was really necessary to have something in there about the kind of counteraction, the effort to dispel the monstrous in popular culture. And that figure is really the detective. The detective who somehow understands the monstrous body of the city and its variety, who can make his pathway, and who uses a combination of intuition and reason in order to solve the crimes there. So there's The monster, in a certain way, as a response to the Enlightenment, as a response to reason and rationality as being the order of the day. And the detective tries to bring back that reason.
0: Do we resent the detective at the same time we love his skills and talents and admire his brain, resent him for banishing these ghosts that we seem to enjoy so much? Well,
1: he never manages to banish them entirely. That's the thing. The detective always comes back. Crime is never vanquished entirely. You win the battle, but you never win the war. So we can resent him maybe a little bit because he knows more than we do, but we want to be like him, I think. The monster and the detective appeal to different aspects of our own sense of self. Um, The monster, as we were talking about, you know, it's like uh, the sense of independence, the sense of being different from others and not being appreciated in the proper way. The detective is more the side in which we actually try to deal with things in which we try to understand things. Of course, the detective is doing it a lot better than we ever do.
0: So what would you make of my sixth-grade crush on Dracula and Sherlock Holmes?
1: Well, I think that's perfectly appropriate, right? (laughs) Two sides of the same coin. What about superheroes? Where do they fit in? With the superheroes, you have different kinds of form. You have the kind of the mythological superheroes like Thor, you know, coming out of the past, coming out of a, another mythology. And you have superheroes like the X-Men who are different. And we feel somehow inside we're really different and it should be valued in a positive way. And so all these superheroes, like the various superheroes in the X-Men, you know, have a kind of problem uh, that is also their virtue. There is also their power there. So to turn your problem into your power, kind of interesting messages, you know, especially for the the teenage audience, which is so strong in those shows.
0: Leo Brody, thank you.
1: Thank you, Pat.
0: Pat Morrison Asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's edited and engineered by Mike Heflin. The music is from the Halloween movies from Compass International Pictures and Night on Bald Mountain by Modest Muzorski. The movie clips are from Frankenstein and Dracula from Universal Pictures, The Shining from Warner Brothers, and King Kong from RKO. Subscribe to Pat Morrison Asks and never miss a podcast.